0: This program is brought to you by Stanford University. Please visit us at stanford.edu.
1: Welcome to Indecision 2008. (laughs) Uh, The world has taken a strange turn when the most accurate description comes from a program on the Comedy Channel. Uh, This is also, and most importantly, the 42nd annual Carlos Kelly McClatchy Symposium. McClatchy Fellows have been coming to Stanford for more than 40 years, obviously 42nd annual, uh, and they have been very distinguished people. uh, R.W. Apple, Walter Cronkite, John Chancellor. Our um, colleagues today are of at least equal distinction. I, I have to thank at least equal, if not greater (laughs) distinction. I should say, or the, um, I wanna thank uh, Phil Taubman of the New York Times um, because this symposium was uh, actually initially his idea and he helped a great deal. So I could say he was the architect of this. If it turns out well, he's the architect, if it does not turn out well, that comment was not for attribution and it's all my fault. So we'll see how we've implemented this idea. Back in, uh, I'm Jim Fishkin, the chair of the Department of Communication. Uh, back in December, one of our guests, Adam Nagorney, observed, there's probably never been a presidential campaign quite as challenging to track as the 2008 race given the sheer number of candidates and the shifting calendar of nominating contests." Unquote. That's an understatement. Let's review some of the reasons this race has been and will continue to be extraordinarily challenging and different from most all others. And then we're gonna ask our distinguished panel to comment on those challenges, first on the primary season, which is now just concluding, and then in a second round on the upcoming general election. Uh, Now, I can only give the briefest of introductions because we have uh, uh, an extraordinary array of riches in our guests. I mean, we've got five, so I'm only going to just say about them that, um, in alphabetical order, Dan Baltz is the national political correspondent for the Washington Post. He's been involved with the paper's political coverage for 27 years um, and co-author of a 1996 book, Storming the Gates, uh, about the Republican revival. Elizabeth Miller, National Affairs Correspondent for the New York Times and a former White House Correspondent, the author of three books including the recently published Condoleezza Rice and American Life. Ann Kornblut is a staff writer for the Washington Post and was previously at the New York Times and at the time she covered Senator Clinton's re-election campaign and she's continued to cover Senator Clinton uh, for the Washington Post. Adam Nagourney is the national political correspondent for the New York Times and has covered almost every aspect of this campaign and he's been covering presidential races since 1996 when he covered Bob Dole. He's also the co-author of Out for Good, the struggle to build a gay rights movement. Walter Shapiro is the Washington bureau chief of Salon.com and previously he wrote a twice weekly national column for USA Today and also worked for Time and Newsweek and he's our representative of the new generation of media. <laughs> uh, now, why is this campaign such a challenge? As Nagorney noted, it began with a lot of candidates on both sides of the aisle. On the Democratic side, there were nine at one point, I'm counting Vilsack. On the Republican side, there were 11. And if I were to mention all their names, you'd realize how long this has been going on. Names like Rudy Giuliani and Fred Thompson, now long forgotten. And as Nagorney noted, the calendar is completely different. The most front-loaded, and ironically, the most indecisive in history, beginning with Iowa January 3rd, and a virtual natural, national primary on Super Duper Tuesday, February 5th, where everybody I talked to said it was gonna be over after that. Now, these primaries had extraordinary turnout levels and an extraordinary number of debates, 23 on the Democratic side by my count, 18 on the Republican, a record amount of money spent, hundreds of millions of dollars. By the end, some people think each of the winning candidates will have spent half a billion dollars, a nearly unprecedented role for superdelegates. They were invented but almost never had to do anything they had a cameo role with Mondale Hart, as you might remember in, or know in 1984, but Mondale rounded up the votes very quickly. Basically 24 hours after Mondale lost the California primary, he rounded up enough superdelegates to win. So for 24 hours, the courting of superdelegates went on. Now they've been, it's been going on for, well, much more than the five months of the actual campaign, and it still goes on. And we have the rules committee issue this weekend, so uh, who knows. We have two key states disqualified, Florida and Michigan, and a credential fight that will be broadcast this weekend. A media environment that is instant, often tabloid in its instincts, merciless because it is so unmerciless because it's so decentralized, unaccountable with YouTube, talk radio, cable news, bloggers, webcasts, breaking stories that the mainstream press can react to and choose whether or not to amplify. We have no incumbent president or vice president running, so there's an open race on both sides of the aisle, so it's a double show. Uh, We've also had combustible ingredients that touch social cleavages and deep uh, resonances in our collective psychology like um, race, with Obama, gender with Clinton, age with McCain, religion with Romney, not to mention two pastors, the reverends uh, Wright and Heiji, who have already played a role. We also have a kind of political theater where roles are multiple and fluid. It is if the same people came out on stage at different times with different costumes. An ex-president is now the spouse of a key candidate, Carl Rove is now a political commentator on Fox News. A former Bill Clinton communications director, Stephanopoulos is the co-moderator of one of the key debates attacking Obama with a series of highly personal uh, questions. In this highly unpredictable environment, it's the media that keeps score, that set the expectations of what is news and what is not news. What is a victory, what is a loss, which are better or worse than expected? So these are the people who really have more power than they ever like to admit. Elizabeth Edwards indicted the media for superficial horse race coverage after her husband dropped out in an op ed in the New York Times for providing what she said was mostly the Cliff's Notes versions of the news. Now, today we don't have the Cliff Notes, Cliff's Notes writers. If there's any substantive coverage, it's from people like this, especially these people. But we want to hear about the challenges they face and why. When we have had a primary season in which there have been more debates, more coverage, more participation, uh, we've had, many people would argue, less substance what might be done about it. Now, I want to approach this twice. First, about the primaries, and then, so I want, I'd like each person to say something. I've sent them a menu of possible topics. Say something briefly, relatively briefly, about their experience and the challenges they face covering the primaries. Interact a bit, then we're gonna look forward to the general election, and then we're gonna open it up for questions. So, who would like to go
2: first? Adam, do you want to go first? Go okay. ahead. Hi. Can you hear me? How's that? Okay. Um, first, thanks for having me here. That was a really good introduction that covered every single point I wanted to make. <laughs> so I'll defer to Anne. No, I'm kidding. Um, I mean, I guess this has been, yes, the most complicated race that I've ever covered. Um, actually, my first one was 92 with Clinton, and I covered Michael Dukakis when he ran for uh, president in 1988. Um, but also by far the most interesting and the most um, um, important and compelling. Um, The reasons you went through some of them, let me me go through them. One of of them is the sheer number of candidates. And one of the challenges, I think, for the media this year has been um, to sort of figure out who deserves what kind of attention. Because realistically, you cannot give full attention to 20 candidates, whatever the final number was. As a result, there's a triage process. And I think in some ways that was more acute and more complained about, hence Mrs. Edwards' uh, op-ed, which you can talk about later, um, than before, particularly because you had on the Democratic side two very high-profile celebrity candidates, um, uh, Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama, and I think that was difficult for all of us to try to figure out how to sort of cover them and then cover the whole race. That was complication number one. Complication number two is, maybe Dan can think of one longer, but I've never covered a campaign, primary campaign, which has gone on for so long. And you know, we can argue, if you want, about whether or not Mrs. Clinton should stay in the race, but the fact of the matter is that mathematically this isn't decided and will not be decided, in my opinion, until probably Tuesday or Wednesday. And um, there's been benefits to that. Um, I, I would actually, I actually think this are, there has been some substance uh, related to this campaign. We'll get back to this later. Um, but there's also been some hazards. I mean, I think the campaign has veered off at times into triviality just because of the, t- the fact that it went on for so long. Um, That's the second thing. And the third thing, and again I'm more than happy to talk about all this stuff more if you guys want, um, is how much the media environment has changed. Uh, You know, when I was first doing this in 88 or I think 92 when I first met Dan at at the Washington Post, there was basically, you know, the major newspapers and the networks and we came out every morning and, you know, I, I, every night at 11 o'clock I would go to my computer, this was actually a little bit later, and see what the Washington Post was breaking the next day. And that kind of defined our days. But now we're basically on a 24-hour news cycle. News happens we be put in the paper. Um, we're competing with other organizations which might have as much energy but not uh, as exacting standards, shall, shall we say, in terms of what, uh, what's correct or what's fact-worthy, fa- factually correct. And I just think that's made stuff much more difficult. It, you know, in some ways, it's good. There's more information out there. Um, competition is a good thing in terms of people getting information. And in some ways, uh, it's bad. Bad information gets out there. And I think that standards uh, get, get dropped, not intentionally, just inadvertently, because of the sort of press of sort of feeding the web and feeding the bees. But anyway, that's just to start, this is stuff we could talk about tonight if you want. Hmm. You I'm had your hand ahead? up. Yeah. Shall Do
3: you, I... you want to go
1: next? Yeah? Sure.
3: Um, <laughs> So I, as we have already said here, I started out covering Senator Clinton early on in the race. Um, and this is the second time I've been assigned to a candidate. In 2000, I was assigned to George W. Bush. And I've decided that being assigned to one of these candidates is a little bit like getting your PhD in the person. Um, when I first started covering Senator Clinton, she, there had already been 15 books written about her. And now I have on my desk in the office, I think, I'm up to 18 books about her. That's not including the books about her husband. Um, when you're covering them at that intense of a level, you get to know who their best friend is. I know Betsy Ebling. She's from Chicago. I have her email address. You get to know what their favorite foods are. In the case of Senator Clinton, it's jalapenos, and she eats them in the morning. Um, <laughs> You get to know when their mother's birthday is, and in a strange twist of fate, Senator Clinton's mother's birthday is next Wednesday, which is actually going to be a pretty consequential day, could be a consequential day in this race. Um, In in the case of Senator Clinton, um, she was already, at the start of this race, one of the most famous people in the world, and so the task was to try and get to know her somehow better, to try and figure her out more after her years of being practiced. at only dispensing the information that she wanted to dispense. And we can talk, I'm happy to talk about sort of her portrayal in the press and the extent to which it has been fair or not. Um, But I have a few thoughts about her um, and the way she's been portrayed. And I should say here with the caveat that we will all, Adam has said, we'll all have here tonight, which is it's obviously not over. There are presumptions about the way it's gonna go, but we're all committed to covering it until she's not in it or if she's not in it anymore. Um, But as far as the coverage of her and her as a person goes, it it was interesting to me that she started out as a kind of Rorschach test for people, people who loved her loved her, people who hated her hated her. A lot has been read into her as a person. And I think that that largely remains true, although the polarization that she was sort of known for at the beginning of the race now seems present entirely within the Democratic Party, which is a shift I don't think anyone expected at the outset of this. Um, The storyline of her candidacy is I think, um, and obviously it's up for debate, but I think it's every bit as tied to her husband as her initial bid was. She's obviously emerged as her own person, but no matter how the story of this campaign ends, her husband's gonna be a chief character in it, which I think I didn't expect. I thought we thought he'd be important, but I thought he would be a little more detached from it. And I think maybe the most interesting part of her covering her as a person is that even if, she, even if it does end next week and she isn't the nominee, the story of Hillary Clinton isn't by any stretch of the imagination over. In fact, we've already discussed how we would cover her as an ex-candidate, which is not a conversation I remember having, sort of saying, well, who's going to keep track of her? Who's going to? But she'll be, she will remain important no matter how this turns out, even if she were to just go back to the Senate. And what's so interesting to me about that with her is that here is somebody who started out, her second act was becoming a senator her third act has been running for president, and if it doesn't work out her way, there's automatically a fourth act, which setting aside the remarkableness of her having been the first woman to get to this point, I think is pretty amazing that she's had an automatic four acts, and I suspect more than that. So that's that's my one subject that I'm qualified to talk about in this, having (laughs) (laughs) gotten my PhD, so I'll leave it at that.
1: Great. Well, uh, in the opening statements, why don't we start? Why don't we go with Dan and just move down so that,
4: uh, okay. and then we'll get all the issues out. Good. Um, thank you uh, for having all of us out here. We're pleased, even at a terribly busy time at the close of this campaign, to be out on this great campus. So, thank you all for coming out. I, I will echo a lot of what uh, Adam said. Although I would preface it by saying, given all of the challenges that we've all faced or we will all wring our hands about tonight in terms of what it's been like to cover this campaign. I don't think there's anybody here who wouldn't say that this is the best campaign we could have ever possibly have covered and whatever challenges have been dwarfed by just an unbelievably good story. And, and there's nothing that gets journalists' engines revving faster than uh, an un- unpredictable uh, and ongoing story. So um, this is as good as it gets for political journalism. Um, and the challenges have been, you know. Uh, similar in size to the kind of scope of the campaign. Uh, I agree with Adam that one of the big problems that we've had is just maintaining some sense of balance and and proportionality in terms of the coverage. Um, You know, if you are Chris Dodd or Joe Biden or Bill Richardson or even uh, John Edwards, uh, you have a real and and legitimate grievance about the way you were covered or in fact not covered by, uh, by the media. Um, I, I know our paper did not do justice to them, and, and one could say, well, given how low they were in the polls and how, you know, how badly they ended up showing in Iowa, they probably didn't deserve much. But uh, this, this, this field of candidates it was not you know, a seven dwarfs field of candidates. It was a substantial group of people, and, and though we arbitrarily you know, created tiers, uh, the lower tier, uh, particularly the Democratic uh, field, Uh, was a very extraordinary and very well-qualified group of people, and um, I know we all wrestled with this along the way, but there was no way not to uh, send most of our resources focusing on Obama and Clinton on the Democratic side. And and on the Republican side, it was such a kind of a mishmash of knowing, you know, which of the candidates actually seriously wanted to be the nominee and had a viable path to get there that, uh, that, that, that... The John McCain story is the one story that stands out as as an interesting narrative at both at the worst moments of his campaign and at the best moments of his campaign. And so I think, again, disproportionately, he got more attention uh, than some of the others. Um, um, I think Obama has presented a particular challenge to all of us. And as I think back on, um, you know, from start to finish, there is a tension in covering somebody like Obama, which is on the one hand, how do you, Rightly and legitimately explain a political phenomenon, which is clearly what he was at the beginning and, and, and you know, in, in many ways has maintained himself as such, although much less so in the last couple of months. Uh, how do you do that? How do you? how do you intelligently present in a a fair-minded way the fact that this guy is a phenomenon and that he is generating something out and around the country that we've just not seen before, whether it's in the fundraising numbers or uh, just the kind of grassroots support or the size of the crowds, or just in all the kinds of measures that we saw, and at the same time cover him critically in the way you would any other candidate for president, and particularly one who has the limited amount of experience that he had at the beginning of this campaign uh, as a viable candidate. Um, put aside the question of race, which I suspect we will get to, uh, to later tonight, um, and certainly in the context of the general election, but um, that tension in terms of the coverage uh, I, I think has been hard for everybody um, because you've got to try to present both sides of the story of Barack Obama, and, and I think that we've all wrestled with that. Um, Adam mentioned the sort of the new media culture and, and the sort of the, what I would call the cable blog culture. Uh, and my concern about this, in terms of what it has done journalistically to all of us, is that uh, it, it, there's a there's a funny situation in which we now talk more and more about less and less on the campaign trail. Um, you know, cable has the ability to seize on anything, small or large, and just kind of beat it to death until something else comes along to seize on. Uh, it's as though that that, that we are incapable of handling two or three storylines at the same time, so we focus on one, and if it's not that that great a storyline, we'll kind of pump it up so that it seems like it's one. Uh, And we increasingly, I think, talk more to one another than we do to a general audience. I mean, there's clearly a, a... population of political junkies, of which we are sort of on the front lines, and I suspect a lot of you are are foot soldiers in it as well, but but there are also a lot of other people who vote, and figuring out how you pitch your coverage and provide people of all types with all the things they need uh, has been a challenge. And I think the last thing I would mention is uh, the demands on everybody at this table today are so much different than they were uh, three cycles ago, or even one cycle ago, um, the amount of things we are now expected to do as part of covering a campaign, uh, which is to say we are writing for the web, we are writing for our papers, we are doing podcasts, we are doing video, we're doing radio interviews, some people do TV, um, it is endless, and I've, I've joked around the newsroom that, there, you know, that. A, there was, a, you know, there was a while ago, early in the campaign, where I had to give up reporting. There just wasn't any time to do any <laughs> reporting anymore because we type all the time. Uh, and, and then it got to the point where you couldn't even be, you had to give up thinking. Uh, and uh, I say that only partly facetiously because we, I think we now often uh, write, we try to write with a sense of authority, but I think sometimes we are forced to do it with less Good information than we might have been comfortable with in the past and it's you know it is a function of, of a limited number of hours in the day and and uh, many masters that we are asked to serve so
5: um, I couldn't agree with Dan more. I, I, we could go on endlessly on that topic because I, I find the same thing true, that the, the difference between covering, uh, well, I was covering the president in 2004, so it's a little different flying around on Air Force One but and on the White House press charter, but the difference between 2004 and 2008 is night and day. But Dan has said it better than I could. I'm going to tell you just a bit about covering John McCain. That's that's who I'm covering this, this cycle, um, along with Michael Cooper and Michael Luo of The Times. There's... Two of us, or three of us, who who trade off. Um, And I just wanted to say, we're um, like Anne. I'm part of a vanishing breed of reporter, a candidate reporter. Fewer and fewer newspapers and and uh, television uh, networks. Well, the big networks still do, but there are fewer and fewer media organizations who put. Reporters on a campaign full time. It is very, very. It's shrunk enormously. We're down to about for the newspapers, the old media, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the L.A. Times, the Wall Street Journal, and I. That's about it. There's you know, and the reason is partly uh, well, uh, is because it's enormously expensive, and uh, there's a debate about how valuable it is. Um, I think it's quite valuable. Uh, uh, but it's just, it's just a whole different environment now with, with the media. Um, I'll just tell you quickly that we're t- I'm supposed to talk about the primaries here. John McCain, basically the Republican primary was over in March when John McCain effectively won the nomination. Um, a lot of because he was the last man standing among the Republicans, and um, there's as much luck to do with that as, as the, uh, any brilliance in his campaign, although they ran a smart campaign in New Hampshire. Um, and he's really spent the last uh, two or three months running a general election campaign without, a can- without an opponent, which I think has hurt him. There was some debate within the campaign in the beginning, will this be good or bad for McCain? And I think they would say now it's been bad for him. Um, and he s- suffered for a number of reasons. Um, Adam had a really great story last Sunday about the problems in the McCain campaign. Um, I think what's been interesting is that um, we were talking about lack of substance in this race. Well, it's interesting in the last, month, last six weeks, McCain has made uh, a series of very major policy speeches on, in, in order, foreign policy, uh, the economy, health care, uh, uh, the environment, the, the uh, judicial system, gun control and and national security policy, nuclear policy, which he just did um, on Tuesday in Denver, which I covered. And um, I really think to the Times' credit, we have have run these stories big. Most, I think, all have run on page one. we treated them very seriously. But I must tell you, many of these never made the network news. And it's the sign of the times that, um, that, that that is the way it is. These have been, they're not difficult, they're not easy stories to cover um, because you're constantly comparing where he's differing from Bush and so forth and how he's you know, moving to the right or the left or the center. He's tacking all over the place right now. It makes it quite confusing to cover him. Um, but I, and I also think he's been quite hurt in the last couple of weeks, obviously, by a spate of very bad stories about uh, the lobbyists in his campaign, his gaffes, um, and his temper, which I could tell you about firsthand if you'd like to ask. <laughs> 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 I don't know how many of you are, are uh, YouTube viewers out there. but. Um, uh, anyway, it's one thing I get asked about almost everywhere I go. Um, he, um, and I, and um, he's still making a very, very difficult transition, I think, from the insurgent or the maverick, whatever you want to call him. I've stopped using those labels from 2000, to the Republican standard bearer in 2008. It's not an easy fit for him, and I think they're still struggling to get it right. Um, he still spends time in the back of his campaign bus. And I'll just tell one little personal story. You know, when I first I started covering him in January, And so I didn't, I wasn't one of those reporters in 2000 who was hanging out in the back of the bus in New Hampshire for eight hours a day. So I didn't, I was covering actually Rudy Giuliani at City Hall in New York. I had a wholly different experience. And um, so for me, after covering the Bush White House, when I first joined joined up and became covering the McCain campaign in January, I found the access to the candidate absolutely debilitating because (laughs) I couldn't get any work done. It was, he was in the back of the bus for hours talking to the press and I kept on thinking, well, the Washington Post is back there. I can't ignore it. My, you, know, you, know, this is, you know, I've got to go. But, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't filing, you know. I was sitting there listening to the candidate. And finally I learned I had to just take myself out of the bus and put myself on the press bus and file. Um, and since then it's changed a lot because he's now running really a national campaign and there isn't as much uh, straight talk express. Uh, you know, he, he flew yesterday, 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 he flew from... Um, we flew to Los Angeles, um, and Dan knows what I'm struggling with. There. Where are we? <laughs> we were in Reno. We were Phoenix, Reno to Los Angeles, and you know, there's no bus. It's the plane, and he's tried these things on the plane, but it's hard to do. And but there are times when he does have the bus still, but he's, um, but it's it's there's it, it's fewer. There's less time, and it, he's much much more of a disciplined Republican, I would say, candidate right now, who's very much on his talking points from the previous speech so those are my thoughts and I will just pass it on now to Walter the new media
6: (laughs) well my first campaign I've been covering presidential politics for a while my first campaign was Wilson not 1912 (laughs) but
7: the (laughs) reelect
6: I actually once said this on one of these afternoon TV shows with one of these blonde anchors who got her job for her intellect, and she looked at me <laughs> puzzled, trying to remember, was Wilson before or after Bush won? <laughs> uh, but uh, what I'd like to do um, is, uh, revel in the laugh, no, <laughs> uh, what I'd like to do is just hit a couple of things fast, because so much has been covered, and uh, these are all esteemed colleagues of mine who I, whose work I... Um, think the world of, and I'm also uh, a great admirer of our moderator, Jim Fishkin, and it's great to be here at Stanford, but just let me make a few points that are important to me that no one else has touched on. The Project for Excellence in Journalism uh, has been doing media monitoring. And the statistic that stuns me the most is that watching the three cable networks from Beginning of January to mid-May, two-thirds of their primetime airtime was devoted to the presidential campaign. That leaves a third for Iraq, President Bush, the Chinese earthquake, uh, the cyclone um, in Burma, and miss every abducted child in the entire <laughs> world and every good looking woman who disappeared under mysterious circumstances. (laughs) It is a breathtaking amount of time devoted to politics. And I am somebody who, despite all the fascinations of Obama versus Clinton going on forever, also realizes that to some extent the race, which is not exactly over, has been stuck in amber. For, certainly since the Pennsylvania primary and Ohio and uh, Texas where Obama did not record exactly the fame knockout blow. And it, it got so bad that I actually have started and this I'm not making this up, nexusing myself as I write and asking, have I typed that sentence before? <laughs> <laughs> I actually had a whole lead that I wrote about how this, the democratic end game is like Sartre's no exit and, and I said that sounds familiar. And, and it, it I literally was a lead I used on February 18th. <laughs> Thank you Nexus. I would, otherwise I would have had to sue myself. <laughs> And you would have won. (laughs) One of us would have. Uh, But the serious point here is that in all of this, cable television isn't exactly setting the agenda, but certainly for the online world, it is is causing a certain degree of never-ending buzz. And what cable television has to fill the airtimes with because believe it or not, there are not enough gaffes per day to fill the airtime as hard as cable tries, is predictions about what's going to happen next. And we have been awash in meaningless national polls. Um, Can we just remember that Rudy Giuliani was actually considered on cable television a serious presidential candidate? if you remember nothing else, and I bet Elizabeth knows this fact, that since New York became a combined city in 1898, no mayor of New York has ever been elected to another political office. <laughs> it is, without a doubt, the single guiding touchstone, um, as President Lindsay will be the first to tell you. <laughs> but, seriously, one of the things that has really undermined the seriousness of this very important presidential campaign c- happening at a time when 81% of the American people think the country is on the wrong track is that so much of the time has been devoted to predicting things that turned out not to happen. And fighting this uh, is almost a never ending battle. I mean, um, the easiest, the other thing is two other points and one of which is that when I wrote a column for USA Today, USA Today was, is of course the best circulated paper in America that nobody actually admits to reading. Uh, <laughs> but they did claim 2,002 circulations per day and they also claimed 3.3 um, pass along readers uh, for every copy, so I knew confidently, in every day I wrote a newspaper column, 6.6 million people <laughs> read every word of my column. <laughs> online, there is a, shall we say, a little more precise way of reckoning who is reading you. And for anyone with a sensitive ego, no matter what your publication, no matter what your online presence, avoid these numbers at all costs. (laughs) But what it does do, and I don't, and Salon, by the way, I wanna say, of any media organization in this country, with the exception of the Politico, which is all politics, I think we've devoted a higher percentage of our gross revenues to covering this campaign than anyone else I can think of. But that said, it is really sobering to learn what stories, do not get readers no matter how well they're packaged. And Salon also allows comments from readers to be posted at the end of all the pieces. So whenever I write a horse race piece, there are hundreds of nasty comments about why don't you give us issues, which is what we crave. So I write an issues piece. And let us merely say that if every reader of your standard issues piece was in this room, they wouldn't have to worry about someone sitting next to them. (laughs) I mean, and that it is a real problem in the sense that there are tremendous issues both being out there, being discussed by the candidates, like um, the McCain speeches that Elizabeth talked about, and all the issues not being discussed by the candidates, and all the issues of governing style not being discussed by the candidates, And it is very hard to get readership for this. And in a changing media environment, as much as I'm wedded to old fashioned, uh, forget what the public wants, give them what they need values, it is very sobering to realize how little readership there is for issue stories. The other thing about the democratic race, and I'll end on this, that is really troubling For those people who do care about the substance of policy, what do you do when two leading Democrats who have been fighting each other for four months almost never engage one another on most issues? When they went after each other on the gas tax in Indiana, the uh, gas tax holiday that Hillary supported and Obama didn't. It was, I think, the first difference of opinion on anything energy-related in the entire campaign. And in keeping with the content-free, symbolism-heavy nature of this campaign, it was about what they would do as president in the summer of 2008 about gas taxes when none of them are going to be president in the summer of 2008. (laughs) And it is really, Uh, As bad as some of the debates were, and the last debate in Philadelphia, uh, Philadelphia was horrendous, particularly in the first half, when Obama and Clinton are given opportunities to raise issues with one another, they tend to say, we both basically agree, and they go on to one of their points. And the last, last word is, for eight presidential elections, I've been trying to figure out a way write about people's management style and governing philosophy, the stuff that will really matter in the first six months of a new president in a way that readers will, will want to read this. I have never succeeded. It is my greatest frustration, but as uh, you know, the Bush presidency illustrates, it, uh, how people get information and what they do with it tends to have, shall we say, a little effect on what happens when they're president.
1: Well, those six or eight million people who didn't read your column were missing something, Walter. Thank you. <laughs> uh, look, uh, this panel agrees too much. So not that I w- want to foster disagreement, but I'd like to sharpen uh, the issues. Uh, everybody seems to say that uh, we... What was the word, phrase you used? Contentless, free campaign. Uh, Dan Baltz said we were, we were talking more and more about less and less. Um, we were talking about the... Uh, obsessive triviality of the campaign. We had 23 Democratic debates and almost that many Republican debates and yet the issues are not uh, clarified. Um, When this current primary system was launched in the McGovern-Fraser reforms uh, after Humphrey won the nomination without entering a single primary, then the the McGovern-Fraser reforms said the cure for the ills of democracy was more democracy. Now we have lots more democracy. And at the beginning of this campaign, before this campaign season, we did some research which showed that the public really wanted a primary season where all the states somehow would matter. They didn't like this front-loading. We have, at least on the Democratic side, and to a considerable extent on the Republican side, a system where all the states or most of the states have mattered. The public wanted more debates. We have lots of debates more public affairs coverage, a lot more we have. But yet, I have this feeling that, that uh, the public has been provided a lot of food, but it's sort of like junk food. It's, it's not very nourishing. What, if anything, any reflections on, I mean, does, is, this, is there anything you can do about this? You're in the front lines, uh, setting the agenda. Uh, of course, every time I ask a journalist, you know, I think they have power, they always deny it. But nevertheless, is there anything we could do to improve the coverage if there's ever uh, another round of this? I want to raise this issue before we go on to the general election and the horse race again.
2: Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure I agree entirely with the premise. Um, Good. <laughs> um, do I think, if you, if you look at what Dan was talking about, cable TV, those cable TV spend lots and lots of time on trivial issues. Yeah. Um, that's not all they talk about, A. B, I think that there's, I, I'd say that anyone who's following the campaign in this room, you, you pretty much know what the major positions of all the major candidates are, okay? Remember, we're not talking about a general election where there are sharp differences or there will be sharp differences between Senator McCain and presumably Senator Obama or maybe Mrs. Clinton. We're talking about a primary. Now, it's partic- particularly on the Democratic side, particularly between Obama and Clinton, there were not huge differences between them. It, the, 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 the fact of the gas tax, it was remarkable that they disagreed on that. Before that, I think the biggest argument they had was whether or not Obama's health care plan covered 70% of the American, adult Americans, or 100%. I mean, you we didn't have big differences. But I think people, therefore, were making their decisions based on other things, electability um, being one, um, to whatever extent experience versus change. But I think people know, um, know the basic positions of all these candidates. So I, I guess I don't really agree with the premise. I also would say that as we move into the prime, the general election, what McCain's speech, speeches, set of speeches that Elizabeth talked about, signaled is the fact of the matter is we are going to have a huge choice this, this, uh, this fall between two candidates, whoever the Democrats nominate, with a tremendous difference of points of view, particularly on the war um, and also on the economy. So I, you know, I, just, I, I, so I don't entirely, I, I realize this is a criticism of the media we always hear, and then often it's true, and I get a little bit upset sometimes when I turn on CNN, which I actually think does a good job, and they spend a little bit too much time on you know, trivial stuff, but I, don't, I just think it's an oversimplification. But,
3: but I would say that one subject that we sort of take as a given here, but that is what, if you remember back to the beginning of this very long process, was the issue, is the Iraq War, and... You, I will agree with you that I, I, I will be one of those reporters who says that the media doesn't control this process in that the first time I ever saw Barack Obama in a public setting, it was a, the Tom Harkin steak fry in Iowa in August of 2006. And um, it was 2006, that's right. Gosh, it was a long time ago. And, um, he, it was not a, no, no one thought he was running for president, he was far too new, and thousands and thousands of just actual people showed up. And they, a lot of them, this enormous crowd in the middle of a cornfield in Iowa, liked him because of his stance on the Iraq war. And that has gotten forgotten somewhat as Clinton has shifted to the left and as the, the, the debate has become about what to do going forward instead of looking backward. But I think that that has defined the race in a really substantive way from the outset. For the comments?
5: I you know I I was Adam took away what I was going to say I always Sorry. give that answer when people ask me about the, the dreadful shallowness of the media I also think 2004 just to go back was uh was about was a serious uh election about serious issues I mean it and you know it was it, it was you know, deeply focused on the war, just like this one started out. I, I just don't, I don't have much more to add other than I agree with Adam, too, that we're going to have really serious substantive uh, disagreements in the fall with McCain. He's right now with these speeches laying laying out his territory, you know, marking his territory and, and already, you know, s- striking out the difference. But I... I uh, you know, also, look, you, the the people you have up here are the we're, we're the we're the dinosaurs of this of the media that we cover we these issues. Oh,
1: hey. <laughs>
5: but you know, we are the ones. You're,
1: you're the giants, not yeah, the dinosaurs. Yeah, the two
5: newspapers, the Washington Post, and the New York Times. I mean, this is where you. This is what we do, and so uh, you know, we're not a representative group up here, frankly. Of of. of of campaign coverage. I mean, I think we're the best. I, you know, that's my bias. That's but, why we invited you. <laughs> but, but it's not. You know, and yeah. but I do also think too. I will say one other thing with the, with the um, the demands on us for the the blogging. That you know, if something. If McCain says something at, at you know, if he's going to say something at 10 a.m. If he's going to give a speech on this happens on a Tuesday on net, on nuclear security policy, and I have the advanced text, um, I. Um, you know, it's embargoed until he starts talking, but I better have it written before, you know, based on the text before, right after he starts talking. You know, there's there's some superficiality there, I will agree, because I'm going, it's, I'm writing way too fast, I'm waiting, you know, way beyond my lo- knowledge level at that point, and there's a just slap it up on the web, let's get it up. And uh, that's not a comfortable situation. And that happens every day, not not always on nuclear policy, but it happens on the environment, it happens on on judges, it happens on the economy, on, on a lot of stuff. And I find that superficial, what I do there. And,
2: um, but with the final story at the end of the day, this is interesting about how the process has changed, the yeah. story that you do by the end of the day has the kind of depth that we it's expect. good,
5: usually but the no, early you're,
2: understanding, you, it's, it, you're right, but the editing and thinking, and as Dan yeah. said, what you miss most of all is thinking, but by the end of the day you hopefully have up. You I mean, you do have a hel-
5: I guess what I've learned is it, it helps you think, to force you to write so fast it helps you think, it forces you to think um, and uh, it, you know, it it does make you move faster. I, I do now make deadline all the time because I'm writing the story from, from the earliest part of the morning. But that, that is, I think, where it's become more superficial in our, in our line of work.
1: Okay, okay, Dan, I've been criticized for defending the proposition which I quoted from you that <laughs> we've been talking more and more about less and less. So uh,
4: do you still believe it or...? Uh, yeah, I do believe it. I, I, but I also would say that um, You know, I don't think that there is a dissatisfaction level on the part of most consumers of political news this year. I mean, every indicator we have, whether it is uh, clicks on the Internet or, you know, intensity of readership, uh, turnouts in primaries, every indication particularly because of the Democratic race, uh, says that this is a very engaged electorate and that they are not, you know, absent crucial information in trying to figure out their decision, they may be conflicted about their decision but it's not because of the absence of information. But I I do believe, as I said before, that the the buzz that goes on about politics very often is more inside and more trivialized uh, than it needs to be, and that that tends to to have an effect on all of us. Um, While I have the microphone, I will will take issue with something that Walter said, and this is, I think I'm in the minority on this. He mentioned the Philadelphia debate uh, that, ABC did. I actually did not think that was a debate that was as bad as many people seem to think, and particularly the um, Obama world, which reacted very, very negatively to it. Um, my feeling on that debate was we had gone through at that point twenty two debates, um, issues of Iraq and health care and virtually every other substantive policy had been aired out in some way or another in those previous debates. It was not as though there was real new ground in terms of substance uh, on some of these issues. There's always a new way to ask some of these questions, but if you've watched all of those debates, as I suspect many of you probably did, and those of us here did as well, um, you know that the candidates know how to answer the question in the way they want to, no matter how the question is put. Um, What I thought was notable about that debate was that it was the first time in 23 debates that Barack Obama was treated like the front-runner that he was and that he was given uh, questions first and he was given hard questions and he was given perhaps some unfair questions uh, although I don't think as unfair as some others did and that this was a moment that was important because one of the big questions about Barack Obama uh, that he still will have to answer if he is the nominee is just who is Barack Obama and are people comfortable with who he is. People are still getting to know him. Uh, Peter Hart, the pollster who does the NBC Wall Street Journal poll, uh, did a focus group down in Virginia a couple of weeks ago with independent voters who have not paid as close attention as perhaps a lot of people in this room have paid. Uh, and he found that their understanding of Obama was almost entirely shaped by Reverend Wright uh, and by uh, some misinformation they may have about him or some qualms or questions they may have about him. Uh, so that the questions that uh, George Stephanopoulos and Charlie Gibson <coughs> aimed at Obama that night, I thought went to the heart of that, and the story that Ann and I wrote reflected that. Um, it included one of the most unfortunate paragraphs I've ever written, which said, also discussed during the debate, and then I listed like seven issues, and then there were three paragraphs that uh, went to the rest <laughs> of those issues, and we were bombarded, or I was bombarded the next, well, for the next week or two by people who thought this showed the general uh, shallowness of the mainstream media, but, <laughs> but nonetheless, um, I think that uh, in the course of this campaign, there are moments for lots of different kinds of coverage, uh, and. I think that my lament is that we're not as capable as we ought to be at, at providing different kinds of coverage at the same time, that we all, you know, we're like a little kid's soccer game. You know, we all tend to run where the ball is rather than play our positions the way we should. And that that's the concern that I continue to have.
2: Can I add one other thing before you do your, your rebuttal, Mr. Chair. Be- I agree with
4: Dan. I, I forget when we talk about this. I happen to agree with Dan on
2: this. Um, the other thing is if I was a De- if I was a Democratic superdelegate or just a Democratic voter and want to know this question I mentioned before, who is most electable? I thought that was, a, I, with maybe one or two exceptions of the other questions, that was a perfectly legitimate and revealing um, debate.
6: Well, rather than defend my critique of the Philadelphia debate, which I will happily discuss at length when this is over, I want to go to a different <laughs> Aspect of the same problem. See, that's what Obama should have done at the debate. (laughs) (laughs) That's what Obama should have done with those (laughs) tough questions, right? Uh, And that is, normally in a presidential campaign, the front-runner is pretty inaccessible to the press through much of the campaign. uh, And it is the challenger on the model of John McCain 2000 or almost any challenger you can think of who is wide open, desperate for attention. The Democratic race began, as Ann mentioned, uh, in essence at the Tom Harkin Steak Fry uh, at late summer of 2006, when Barack Obama demonstrated that even in Iowa, he was a superstar. So what you had was the superstar incumbent-esque candidate, Hillary Clinton, and the superstar challenger Barack Obama, and the superstar challenger gave very few interviews to much of the campaign. And one of the frustrations of being fair in this campaign is that John McCain is going to be infinitely more accessible even if he goes under wraps than than Barack Obama as the probable Democratic nominee will be. And what you get is if you're not giving interviews, even if you're giving press conferences, press conferences tend to be issue of the day, shouted questions about the controversy of the moment. An interview may actually allow you to ask three or four questions about someone thinking about a topic that hasn't dominated the headlines. And that for the most part, we have not had those kinds On a systematic way those kind of conversations uh, with either Obama or Hillary Clinton until she started losing.
1: Um, I think in in order to preserve our time for questions, I think I'd like to move on to the the general election. Um, So the general election is also unusual, unprecedented, First, we'll probably have, and then I'm going to ask everybody to make a comment and we'll continue the discussion, then we'll open it up to questions. We will probably have the first non white candidate, either the first non white candidate or non male candidate, uh, running against uh, virtually the oldest. I think there's a one year difference with Bob Dole. Yeah. Uh, We have Third party candidates, probably not significant in Bob Barr and Ralph Nader, but one never knows if it's close. We have an environment where new states may be in play in the electoral map. We have an incumbent president with below Nixon like uh, approval ratings, maybe 27%. We have the expected appearance of 527s. Uh, including some of the people involved in the swift boats. Uh, There's the theoretical possibility of a terrorist attack or some other event uh, that might uh, scramble all electoral calculations. Now, at the moment, the party out of power has a great advantage in the polls on the two major issues, the war and the economy. Although I must say, if I were asked what would any of the candidates actually do about the war. You know, yes, there's been discussion about the war, but it's a little bit mysterious what the act, what would actually happen about the war. So to say that the war has been discussed is still a bit uh, not, not definitive in terms of knowing what will happen, the economy, uh, uh, and yet McCain stays competitive in national polls and, um, uh, some people have argued that if the Republicans hold the South and win Ohio and Pennsylvania, they'll win the election. So, my question is: um, What are the challenges you see going forward in covering this? What are the key um, touchstones on the road to the presidency that that our our uh, uh, our colleagues here should pay attention to?
2: Um, you want to go first? Yeah, I'll just I'll, I'll just give a couple of. Uh... Things I think people should watch out for uh, to look out for in the months ahead and i 'm going i 'm going to assume that Senator Obama is a democratic nominee um, and if i 'm wrong, sorry um, you know as as uh, you were saying before this is as unpredictable a race as I can remember um, if I was doing this on a traditional political model, I would say for all the reasons Jim has mentioned you know the the, the, the way people are feeling about the country, the unpopularity of the war, the power of the change dynamic in election, the economic problems, the fact that I saw gas being sold around here for $4.77 a gallon, which is a lot. Um, um, you would say, and also the fact that you have a Republican candidate who is linked with the, with the president, who does support uh, the war, and also supports many of his economic policies. I would say it's as close thing as a no-brainer uh, that the Democrats could have to win. Um, The thing that's stopping me is race, and to me that is the single biggest question. We don't know, for example, whether those results in um, West Virginia, um, in Ohio and Pennsylvania, where Obama lost white blue collar voters by a significant amount to Hillary Clinton, suggest any kind of undercurrent of racism or resistance to electing a black guy as president. And, And to me that's the single biggest question. I don't know the answer. I'm not sure um, how to measure it. I'm not sure polls measure it. I'm not sure voter interviews measure it. Um, it's, it's just a really tough thing to call. Um, you know, a lot of people thought that after Obama won uh, Iowa by a significant margin uh, back on January 3rd, which is like, you know, I think it's not the whitest state in the country, one of the one of the whitest states in the country, that that suggested that the country had passed some sort of threshold in terms of voting for an African-American. I think as the election went on, that showed itself not to be true. So there will be nothing I will be watching closer than that. Um, And I just don't know the answer to that. Other quick things to watch out for is uh, let's find out. You know, one of the big debates we've had all year is, would Clinton be the stronger Democrat or would Obama be the stronger Democrat? Um, You know, I can argue both sides. I have argued both sides. So um, we'll get some indication of that. Um, Let's wait and see whether he picks her as a running mate or not. you know, I would argue it's a good idea. There's people on his cap that would argue it's not. And finally, will new states really be in play? Uh, you know, Obama argued, again, I'm assuming he gets nomination, that because he did well in traditionally red states, therefore he's going to put more states in play. I'm not sure that's necessarily true with the exception of Virginia, but that's the other thing I'm going to be looking out for. So. In the same order? Yeah.
3: Um, well, along some of the same lines as what Adam's talking about, I think this so far, as we were saying, has been an interesting election because we've seen identity politics actually playing out in practice. And so because I'm a one-trick pony going forward, I will be curious to see where the Hillary Clinton voters go, especially the women who um, are now, so many of them saying that they won't vote for Barack Obama. I, I tend to think that this is like uh, people I know who said they were going to move to Canada when if Bush were elected and that they'll, at the end of the day, change their minds, but I don't know, and I don't think we have any... Um, sense yet what the lasting effect um, on gender issues is going to be from the primary. Um, a second question for me, is as a second component of it, is to get back to Walter's earlier point about predictions. I too am no fan of the horse race predictions, we're always wrong, but as you suggested, predicting what the person would do as president is a vital part of it. Uh, a lot of people thought that Bush's ability to run a campaign well meant that he would run the government well, and it was sort of a one-to-one ratio. And we've tried to draw some of those lessons in this campaign yet, but there's a lot, I agree with Adam, there's a lot we don't know about Barack Obama. Um, And so trying to demonstrate that, and also for John McCain, in in the general election coverage, when you're discussing a hypothetical, it's frustrating to to write, it's frustrating to read, uh, but it's incredibly meaningful. So how we do that again will be a question. And then the third thing that I think is just gonna be fun for reporters is seeing these candidates in the Senate there are going to be two ways to cover them. One's going to be on the campaign trail, and the other is back in Washington. And they all have personal relationships and not-so-great relationships. There's talk of a trip to Iraq. You know, seeing how they interact with each other is always, is always entertaining and, and can be meaningful, too. But it's one of the parts I'm looking forward to.
4: Great. Uh, Dan? Maybe we'll go down this way. Okay. Um, I would start with the question of, is this country in the same place today that it was after the 2006 election? Um, There are lots of sort of objective indicators that would say yes, as Adam suggested, that would tell you that this is going to be a very good year for the Democrats. Uh, And everything certainly points to that in congressional races and perhaps in the presidential race as well. Um, But we know from history that uh, midterm elections uh, often turn out to be faulty indicators of where the country is and the choices they're actually going to make once they get to a presidential year. Um, And so that's one question in my mind, to sort of keep reexamining our own assumptions Uh, about the country that we're dealing with as we head into the fall. Um, There are a lot of voter blocks that are going to be very interesting to watch this year simply because of the combination of candidates that it looks like we're going to have. Obviously, the Latino vote uh, has been and remains a critical vote in determining who's going to be President and particularly this year because of McCain's role in immigration, his ties to uh, the Latino community in a way that is unique among any of the Republican candidates who might have uh, sought the nomination, and Obama's seeming problem in attracting Latino votes against Senator Clinton during the primaries, uh, that's one. Second is the women's vote, um, what will happen to women voters, particularly those, you know, we've, we've given so much attention to the kind of the passion of the Obama supporters around the country. I think we have not, and, and, and Ann and I have talked about this a lot, we, we see it when we are out with Senator Clinton, the passion of uh, many women voters for Senator Clinton. Um, And I think it's been almost underappreciated in the context of the nomination battle. Uh, What happens to those women uh, heading into the fall I think is going to be very important and there will be fierce competition uh, for them. And obviously if Senator Clinton is not the nominee, which seems likely at this point, uh, what she does in terms of trying to help Obama win those voters will be crucial. And and thirdly, the working class white vote. Um, We have been obsessed with this. Uh, It is not clear that what has happened in the primaries is indicative of what will happen in the general election. Uh, I think there are questions probably about the way we've all kind of defined that vote, um, but I think that's one that we're going to have to revisit again with you know, with a new set of, of, of eyes and, and ears as we go out and talk to people. And finally, uh, I, I couldn't underscore more what Adam said. I think that the, that the issue of race uh, is the biggest and most difficult story we're going to have to grapple with. Uh, as I mentioned in the context of the primaries, on the one hand, the Obama candidacy represents uh, symbolically uh, great progress in this country uh, in one major party or another. Uh, being on the brink of nominating uh, African-American for president, uh, which in in a sense is a a story of uplift and progress and and, uh, all good things. But uh, we also know that there is still resistance to African-American candidates. Getting at that story in an intelligent way I think is going to be very, very hard. Uh, As Adam said, many of the indicators or many of the techniques or tools that we are used to using Uh, I think we are not overly confident actually provide us the right or real answer. And so looking for new ways to try to come to terms with that, I think, is a big goal of what we're trying to do.
5: Um, I'll be real quick here. Um, I I just, since I'm McCain-centric, I'll do it from the point of view of the, you know, the, well, from from the point of view of the Republicans. I mean, the big question to look look for is how, whether he can successfully straddle the left and the right and the center. You know, the, you know, he, he says himself, as senior people say, this is the, you know, worst possible environment for a Republican this year, where the President has a 28% approval rating. And, but they're saying but McCain is a different kind of Republican. They're hoping that he will not, um, uh, he will be different than, uh, he will set himself apart from the congressional races. And that's the big question in my mind, whether he can successfully do that or if he just presents himself as an incoherent kind of a candidate. I just don't know the answer to that. The second thing to look for, and what I'm interested in, is whether uh, we've seen some of this. Whether Obama's, you know, incredible crowds translate into votes when you have McCain, who is an extremely different kind of campaigner. He has 200 people at town hall meetings. He is not a, you know, a great speech maker. Uh, he, you know, he, can, he doesn't move a stadium. Um, George Bush could do that in 2004. McCain has not shown that he can do that. Maybe he, can, he will get there, um, but he's not there at this point. The other um, thing to look for, of course, is um, how the McCain campaign um, addresses the race issue. They are going to be exceptionally careful. They will never bring up um, Jeremiah Wright, but they will bring up questions of, and they have to some degree already, Obama's patriotism because of the things that Wright said in the church, and that's how they're going to do it. Um, They're also, of course, as we already have seen, uh, the question is how successful they will be in raising uh, the question of, of Obama's national security credentials. I just don't know the answer to that. And finally, I think this year, even though it doesn't supposedly matter, and it never has mattered, and people say, I think the vice presidential choices this year actually might matter. Um, and I think that um, it'll be. I think McCain. This is what I predict. Will wait until I think well, this is what his senior people are telling him that he should wait until after the Democrats pick their nominee. So then he, their, so their vice presidential the nominee. So then he can sort of have more information to judge what he wants to do.
6: Let me come at this a different way. Since uh, I pretty much, since no one brought up the Philadelphia debate in this last <laughs> round, I agree with everybody. Uh, uh, And that is that one of the things um, that interests me is is in a world of information choices, how voters will make up their minds in 2008, where they will get information from, and what information will stick. For example, I have not written about this, but I should. I'm obsessed with the power in the Democratic primary races of candidates' home pages and the candidates' own websites to really mobilize voters and get out information. I I am really wondering how many voters on Election Day 2008, the last thing they do before they leave their homes, is going to look at the websites of both uh, presumably Barack Obama and definitely John McCain. I think that we're in a very different media environment and I think we don't know what sticks. And I, you know, a lot of predictions about what was going to be important this year on the web, like blogs and viral media, uh, so far have been secondary and even tertiary. The other thing that fascinates me is never will we have so many, so much money, particularly on the Democratic side, and so many volunteers mobilized for a presidential race. And what that actually means, and at what point that becomes counter uh, effective. And at what point I do think that many more states are going to be in play because many states were abandoned that might have been winnable or close to winnable if the candidate had enough money. Al Gore pulled out of Ohio early in, 2000, uh, in the 2000 race in September. John Kerry pulled out of Missouri in 2004 in September for lack of funds. Certainly the Democrats, and quite possibly McCain, will not have to draw the map to, fix, to fit their funds, but that we could have 30 states in play. And the last point is the electoral map generally moves, that it is so rare that the electoral map is as static as it was between 2000 and 2004. The last time it was anything like this was 1952 and 1956 with the Eisenhower landslides. And the final thought, I guess the big question hanging over this election is Barack Obama, John Kennedy, who hits America at a point when the prejudices have eroded, Or is Barack Obama, Al Smith, the candidate who gets nominated before the prejudices have eroded?
1: I think that's a good moment for us to open it up to questions from the floor since we've gone an hour and ten minutes. So would those who would like to address questions to the panel come up to the microphones in a line and we'll alternate this side and that side. If there's somebody in particular you want to direct the question to, let us know. Otherwise, we'll let anybody answer it who wishes. We don't have to answer all of them. I mean, you could, like, one of us. Yeah, yeah. 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 Yes, we have Keep to. We're, I'm yeah. sure that as it develops, we'll have a lot of questions. So we're not going to have five answers to every question. But we'll have some answer. Would you like to go first?
7: Sure. My name is Larry. Um, Larry Mitchell. I'm from Palo Alto. Uh, first, my question. You said you're sort of slaves to a couple of different masters. Uh, I'm not young, I know you said you're dinosaurs, but <laughs> corporate media, the conglomeration of or the incorporation of uh, print media with TV media, with cable media, who do you actually answer to? Because I don't find the truth being told. If uh, Reputable newspapers, I'm sure we all read them, but how many people here listen to BBC News and are they more insightful or more accurate? How many people know about Greg Palast, who's an expatriate who writes for the BBC, who actually gets it right, whereas your papers get it wrong? <laughs> the other question would be, if Rupert Murdoch or NBC is paying the salaries for reporters as we've seen, and how, how can the print media not get it right? I mean, you have O'Neill, you have Clark, now you have Scott McClellan. They are telling us about what happened in this administration, and you guys talk about trivial stuff. You talk about race. Why is race even an issue? Because we're going to establish these presidents? The more you guys talk about it, I don't hear it in Europe. We had European visitors. They are embarrassed when they watched the news or they even read the Post or the Times, because BB Financial is telling us what's really happening around the world, and we don't find this coming out with the candidates. Ask the questions, ask in depth, get it right. Don't talk about race, when their birthday is, what white or black or women wanna do. Let's get over this. And I find the print media, especially and the cable media, perpetuating this myth. So if you're a slave to your salaries, because if you don't get it right, look at Dan Rather, look at all the other guys that got fired. This is important because you guys can't talk about things that are truthful. You've got to talk about well, what your corporate media guys wanted you to talk about. Hmm. And I think that's important for you guys to tell us are we really getting the truth?
1: Okay. Would somebody like to respond to this? Thank you. Thank you.
6: I am actually going to respond to this because I am the person who works for a small company which does not fit corporate media. But I have also worked for. Um, the Washington Post, Time Magazine, um, and USA Today. And can I say that all these conspiracy theories about the corporate media are for the most part um, for, uh, crap. That I think that we are really motivated by the fact that we want to get it right. Uh, we, we are m- motivated by our egos. Uh, and the fact is the number of people who get these um, ideological instructions, um, um, shall we say, um, is um, totally a, a creation um, of um, conspiratorial thinking. I will also say I think we all envy the BBC. I think every one of us up here would like to be supported by attacks on every television set in Britain. <laughs> uh,
4: somebody who works for a still family-owned newspaper, um, though heavily subsidized by the Kaplan uh, educational testing system. Um, I'll echo what Walter says. Um, We were talking about this at dinner. The idea that we are in some way or another getting instructions from some corporate masters uh, is, is folly. Now, you can take issue with some of the things that we report. You can take issue with our editorial pages. Uh, but the idea that there is some sinister hand of corporate media telling us what to do is simply not the way, it, it's a misunderstanding of how all of us approach our jobs. Um, this, is, this is not something that we worry about in the post newsroom. Um, did the, was the media as tough on uh, the administration in the run-up to the war as it should have been? No, um, but has the portrait of George W. Bush that emerged in Scott McClellan's book, is that a a portrait that people don't recognize? No, people recognize that. It's not as though Scott McClellan revealed a new George Bush that a few of you seem to think you knew, but nobody else did. That is a well described portrait of a president who is at 28% approval rating. Um, And so um, the BBC is a great institution, but I don't think it's the be all and end all uh, of world journalism. The, the, The reality is all of us, Um, You sitting there and we sitting here uh, now get information in ways that are quite different than it used to be. And it is possible now to get information that conforms to one's own view of the world in a way that was much more difficult before. There was a more homogenized uh, description of the world every day when we had three major networks uh, and only a few uh, newspapers that disseminated sort of national news. It's far different today. You can go where you want to find the news you want, you can believe what you want, uh, and you can believe things that are true or not true. Uh, We will try to do what we do on a daily basis as professionally as we set out to do. Uh, We know because of the, in a sense, the the more open environment in which we operate um, when we are striking a chord pro or con with people who have a different view of the world. Uh, I think all of us take into account serious criticism of the work we do. Uh, because we get it much more directly than we ever used to because of email, um, we, we You know, we are accessible to all of you if you have a grievance about something we wrote. But very often some of the things that we hear about uh, are based on misinformation. And I find that when I respond to people with what I think is real information, uh, for the most part they, they begin to see things differently or at least understand why we have approached a story the way we did. Um, so I agree with Walter. The, I, the idea that, that uh, there is a sort of a corporate puppet directing the American media in a way that the BBC is free not to do, I think is just wrong.
5: And, I, and also, I just want to say, I think race is an important issue. I disagree with you. And I think the BBC um, uh, should be covering race in this election and in its own country, and I can't imagine it's not. Um, and it's not like covering race. We're not covering the war um, and other serious issues.
2: And like one, more, one more point here. There's a lot of reasons to get into journalism. I love it. It's great. Salary is not what. Worth... <laughs> okay? So all you kids who are thinking about getting in this business, it's really glamorous and great, but you'll never make a lot of money. So, unless you're Dan Rather. So uh, can I ask that,
1: that each question be relatively um, uh, short? I'll,
8: be, I'll, be, very, Thank I'll you. be very brief. Thank you. Uh, my name is David Negrin. I live in the area here at Menlo Park. I've been a lifelong Democrat, but now I'm independent. <coughs> uh, I have a very simple question. Uh, assuming Barack Obama is the Democratic candidate, and you had the opportunity to ask each candidate, John McCain and Barack Obama, a single question in an open press conference, what would that question be?
1: Good question. Who would like to answer it? <laughs> and suppose we had that you had a guarantee that they would answer it.
3: Volunteers? I'm going to cheat in answering this question and um, and plagiarize a colleague of all of ours um, who writes for Slate um, named John Dickerson who um, in 2003 asked President Bush, was it 2003 or no, it was 2004, asked President Bush the question, what mistakes have you made and what have you learned from them? And President Bush responded with nervous laughter and said... I wish you'd given me the question ahead of time so I could have prepared for it. I, I thought that that question, um, I, I would love to pose it to all the candidates at any time, but I, I found it a particularly revealing question and answer session with President Bush, and I'd like to see it for each of them in their own lives. It could be, their answer could be pretty much anything, but I think it would measure their self-reflectiveness. I think President Bush's answer measured his, and I think it would be a good way to <laughs> capture them.
1: Anybody else want to respond to that? No, I like I like hands answer. <laughs> Nobody else has a key question they would pose. Not
4: Anybody? that we not that we would share with our colleagues.
1: Oh oh oh! <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's very revealing about the competitive nature of the
4: news media. We may look like friends, but uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's a mean world out there.
1: <laughs> All right. Well, well, we, uh, we just, yes.
7: Yeah, My name's Elliot Turborg. I live locally. I just have a question about to, to what extent do you think the, the Bradley effect is going to be an impact? And this touches upon <clears throat> some of your comments. And I particularly think about the uh, outcome of the New Hampshire primary where, Obama had surged ahead and, of course, Clinton pulled out the last minute. And I wonder if any of you have uh, done or read any analyses of the other primary results to determine to what effect there might have been a a so-called Bradley effect.
6: Let me just give one example. What everyone forgets is that the pre-primary polls were wrong by a larger percentage margin in South Carolina where that, as I recall, the polls had Obama up by 11 or 12 points and he won by 20, 25 percentage points. And the fact is, since all the polls got the result right in South Carolina, even though they were as widely off as the margin as they were in New Hampshire, everybody forgets about the South Carolina uh, result. And the South Carolina result obviously was the antithesis of the Bradley effect where the candidate underperformed.
1: But, but you had a very big black turnout in South Carolina. Well, yeah, but
4: a similar thing happened in yeah. Wisconsin. There have been any number of states this year in which Obama has outperformed uh, the late polls as opposed to underperform in the Bradley case. So uh, the, 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 evidence, the evidence is not clear that there's a Bradley effect with Obama.
1: We're, we're talking about uh, Tom, Bradley Tom Bradley and the uh, uh, people. the. The actual voting for a black candidate being less when people get into the polling booth than was reported and, and that then was indicated by pre-election polls. Very good question, though. It's something hotly debated. Indeed, we debated it at dinner. But thank you. The end. Nobody. The jury's out. Nobody knows. Any other comments on this? Okay. Thank you. Um, yeah. So we've been talking. Uh, a lot about sort of how to predict what's going to happen, but I was wondering about how you guys um, sort of what your approach is to explaining things that have happened. I've noticed that a lot of the races tend to get explained by what has happened in the last couple of days. New Hampshire was explained by Hillary Clinton um, crying and the Texas was sort of explained by the 3 a.m. ad. Um, but I, I read a story somewhere that someone who just had the demographics of all of the states could have predicted all of the races much better than people were either watching what was happening the days before or looking at the polls in the days before. So do you think that it's, how much do you think it's um, purely a a demographic question and how much do you think sort of these last last minute events really affect what's going to happen at the polls?
2: I don't think it's either or. I think it's both. I mean, clearly, we've seen this campaign some very, very consistent demographic demographic trends in terms of who supported Hillary Clinton and who supported Barack Obama. So that, to some extent, helps explain or predict what's going to happen. But elections are very dynamic, interesting, exciting things. And you point to the to the crying thing. I actually think in New Hampshire, I think there was a series of things that happened in New Hampshire contemporaneous events that affected the outcome of that race. That was one of them. The other one was a debate um, that, that Saturday night when she was attacked by both Senator Obama and Senator Edwards. Um, and I think, that, I think the 3 a.m. ad did make a difference in Texas. So I, all I would say is you know, when you're reporting on a race and you're trying to understand it, you try to process as much information as you can. You talk to as many people as you can, and you look at polling and other data. You just do the best you can trying to figure out why what happened happened. Any other comment on
1: that?
3: i mean i would I would agree with Adam and just to say that this is this is all of what political science is right I mean combining these different effects, the demographics, the ads you put on the air, the grassroots outreach all of this is what the campaigns do it 's all the different strands that we try to unravel to understand it and I believe, at least, and you guys could disagree with me, that it all sort of happens at the margins. We're not going to know how much of it was a 2% shift because of the 3 a.m. ad or you know, one of the ones that is still being debated is in 2000 when George Bush's um, uh, DUI Um, when the news came out right ahead of the election, whether that actually influenced the outcome in Maine and therefore influenced the entire election. I don't think we know. There are those who believe it did. But a lot of this stuff happens in in such a tiny sliver of the electorate that you're really looking at the confluence, and that's how how the campaign sort of wizards make their magic, is by putting it all together.
5: Right.
8: I submit that Laura Bush was a major positive for George W. Bush that Therese Carey was unfortunate and she answered her first question very badly by saying she didn't know whether Laura Bush had ever even worked. My question is, how do you rate the spouses of the candidates? How do you expect to see them deployed?
5: <laughs> uh, spouses. Um. <laughs>
4: Should a man or a woman answer Yeah, question? Yeah, we're, we're debating or, the I, I, sexism I'm going, issue. I'm going
6: to um, give a bland answer, which yeah. is another way of skirting the sexism issue. Uh, I could think of no spouses who have less in common than Bill Clinton and Cindy McCain.
4: Yeah, I was going <laughs> yeah. And, and yeah. Yeah, on the
6: Cindy Both McCain. paid a lot of money in taxes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <I> see, yeah. <laughs> see, a smart reporter can find a trend anywhere. <laughs> but the other question is, and it's almost a Cindy McCain, Michelle Obama, I've not spent much time with either of them, but I have some impressions it is really uh, the, almost the question of the spouse who is underdeveloped in the picture, Cindy McCain, and the spouse who might be overdeveloped in the picture. And I don't know how that plays out at all, though I, I must say I got a little bored hearing Michelle Obama talk about how her husband was stinky in the morning. <laughs>
2: you know, the, if, if there's any indication so far, Cindy McCain I mean, I might have heard her talk, speak twice at a public event. Um, no, I'm not no, not, not I her. She, they, she does not, so far, play a huge role in his campaign. Um, it, Mrs. Obama except for money. Except for money. No, yeah, I mean, public role. Yeah. Um, and, and Mrs. Obama has, so that that'll be.
5: That, Actually, Adam, she knows she. It's not. Uh, she does speak a lot. It's just does, not okay. so covered that it. much. She does. I would say about. Maybe half the time she she says a few words, introduces her husband, talks about her son, their son in the military, you know, um, and that's about it. She she uh, and she travels about half the time, but again, it's not. I, I agree, it's not a major role. I think I think we're gonna, I expect we'll see more of her, but I don't think. You know, she's certainly not a lightning rod at all like, like, like Michelle Obama was and certainly in the beginning of the primaries, and they seem, she, they seem to, of course, have pulled her back somewhat publicly.
9: Next question. Uh, Irvin Dawood, Palo Alto. I have two very unrelated, very quick questions. The first one is, um, I was hoping you could comment on what I would call the biggest journalistic scoop in the, in the primaries, and that was the Bittergate. Quote, that the, the Huffington Post, I think, blogger who was technically not supposed to get in, you know, got in and reported how Obama said, uh, these people turned to guns and religion. And the other one was on the most substantial policy difference between Obama and um, Clinton on the gas tax holiday, uh, how the American public reacted to that, because we're talking a lot about here about how people are going to react maybe to race. But, to me, the, the gas tax holiday was clearly the most substantive difference between the two, and I know that uh, Obama's gotten a lot of, of, of acclaim. People are impressed, the, you know, the experts, that he, he actually said something, you know, what he said. But I think Clinton went with what she did because it was very populistic. Um, and so maybe you could talk about how, um, how the people reacted to the, to the policy difference.
5: Uh, you want to? I I just want to say, you, Adam, you guys are the experts on that on how the people reacted. I mean, I don't know. My reaction was I the talking points and all over the cable TV and the, the editorials were that um, uh, Hillary Clinton was pandering and Obama was so brilliant to to be opposed to this because it was pandering. And but I kept on thinking, but if you're an American out there and you you don't want to pay these, I mean, I just didn't see what. I didn't think it was bad politics, but maybe I'm wrong. You know, I kept on thinking, well, so she wants to, you know, uh, you know suspend the gas, t- you know, she wants to help people out over the summer, even though it's completely meaningless. I didn't see that that was bad politics, but that, and I always, I actually would like to know what you guys think.
2: Well, see, one of the problems is there was no, um, there was no exit poll, Dan, I think I might have met this. Yeah. There's no exit poll question right. on that answer, on that question for whatever reasons. So we don't really have a real good way of measuring in those two states, a, what people thought of that proposal in general, and B, what they thought of Clinton's motivation um, in, in supporting it. We did, a, we did I think, the posted to a poll in advance that found that the public was generally, I think my memory is right about this, was generally divided over the issue, but that an overwhelming majority thought that Hillary Clinton was acting out of political um, purposes in doing that. If one of the sort of... Um, perceptions of Mrs. Clinton's narratives, if you will, of Mrs. Clinton that she needed to sort of deal with uh, was recurrent during this campaign, was that she was motivated by politics, that she was saying stuff she didn't really believe in. So beyond, I suspect, and I don't know, but I suspect that, that, and I think Obama's people saw this and they turned out to be right, that her support of that ended up playing up or sort of reinforcing the perception of people that she will do what it takes to get elected. Fairly or not, but I think that's my guess. But again, because we don't have the data, we don't know for sure.
3: On the question of Bittergate, um, this is a great journalistic question. Uh, we aren't obviously... Uh, my, my first job as a reporter was working for the New York Daily News where the sort of ethic was you do whatever it takes to get the answer or to get the story. And so there's, there's strictures about going into fundraisers or as I was once... Um, Assigned to do pretending to get into a sledding accident in Central Park to time the EMS response. There, there was a much looser <laughs> interpretation of how to go about getting a story. We're not allowed to go. We couldn't pay money to go to a fundraiser and sit there with a the tape recorder, as you know. And I think that's what your question was about. And so it. In a way, we're we're hampered by the rules, the self-imposed rules that we keep as professionals, Um, but I think we all consider ourselves fortunate that someone else wasn't and was able to go in and get information. I mean, it was information, and we want information however we're able to get it. I don't think we would start paying to go to fundraisers, but I think we're fortunate that someone basically acting as a citizen journalist did that for us.
6: Let me, uh, finally, a room for dissenting. I was appalled by this. And I was appalled by the fact that anyone operating a journalist does things under false pretenses, far more extreme false pretenses than anything the Daily News did that and mentioned. I work for an online publication. I also did a book on the 2004 campaign where I talked my way into a number of 2003 early fundraisers for the Democratic presidential candidates. It doesn't always work. But I, as somebody who has covered fundraisers with the permission of the host, and normally the way you get in is you get yourself invited by the host. And then when the campaign says, well, we'd love to, but the host would never allow it, uh, say, here's the host, he invited me. Uh, But the point is, I always worry that there is a feeling when, and it's one of the problems I have with citizen journalism, that I think there is a line between when you're a reporter and when you're a participant. And that I think it does contaminate um, the environment for everyone when people start playing different rules and then claiming they're a journalist. On safer topics, going back to the gas tax, I had lunch on Friday with a, shall we say, a senior person in the Clinton campaign who admitted that in retrospect the gas tax lost Hillary Clinton votes in Indiana, in particular, because it became a character issue, and it had, and that she would say anything for a vote. Wow. Let, let me
4: just briefly talk about the
6: Bittergate because, um,
4: I mean, I, Walter's points are very right. But what fascinated me about that whole episode is that, in my, I would say, limited understanding of how it actually all played out is that this was a person who went to this not necessarily with the intention of reporting on it, um, but in the end, and, and was clearly an Obama supporter, an Obama contributor, all the things we know, but in the end felt for some reasons of conscience that this information ought to be disseminated even though it was detrimental to the candidate that she supported. Uh, so this idea of, I mean, I have questions about how citizen journalism could work, uh, but there is something curious about the fact that somebody who goes, who has all the earmarks of uh, not being, you know, driven by the idea that you should publish and share information, particularly critical information about a candidate, uh, particularly a candidate you like, with the rest of the world, ended up making the decision to do so. I mean, it's, uh, I mean, I thought it's just a fascinating story and. In the way we are, in the environment in which we're now operating.
6: Just in one sentence, for the record, if that is indeed what happened, and some of the circumstances I'm a little shaky on too, uh, then uh, my feelings um, of concern about this are much less.
2: Can I say one thing? I'm appalled that they closed these fundraisers. Okay, I think these, <laughs> things, I think these things should be open, and I think I understand all. What, I don't really, I don't, I don't really consider her a journalist, but generally my presumption never never mislead, okay, but I want information to get out, and that was a newsworthy thing that got out. So one way or another, that was a revealing thing about Obama, that was something that affected the course of the campaign, and I'm all about getting information out.
3: And I would say, just to close the loop here. I mean in an ideal circumstance we'd be able to interview people after closed fundraisers. I agree with that and they should just be open. But you know in my view we should be able to talk to people afterwards and in some ways what happened is similar to if we had spoken to this spoken to any number of people who were there and they had recounted the quote to us. What made it different of course is that you hear the audio tape there is no glossing over what was said. There's no mishearing it so it has a more powerful impact but we could the same information could have gotten out in different ways.
8: Before introducing myself, I do want to say to that point, since most of you addressed it, um, I was at that fundraiser, and, <gasps> oh, wow. I, and, and, and I, I'm not prepared to say now, but of anybody in this room, including the panel, who would like to know in the fullness of time why I believe that what was reported and what was said and what was on the audio tape, because it's not the complete story, is diametrically opposed to the point that was being made at the time and why, in fact, it should have affected positively the outcome in, Pennsylvania and in West Virginia, where I worked as a uh, community organizer myself, and uh, in other states. I'm happy to share that at some other time. My name is Sam Perry, and far too many election cycles, I live locally, far too many election cycles ago, I was one of the boys of the dweebs on the bus. And I just have a question that I'd like to ask by doing a little audience research for just a second to pose it, which was that. I like very much, and I'm very intrigued by the proposition set in the first go-round, that this may be one of the most compelling, interesting elections of our cycle, and yet, as Walter said, it's sort of, I, my word ossified his word, it's turned to amber in the last few weeks. It's sort of stuck there. And it seems to me uh, those conflict with each other. Um, how many people here read a newspaper in the Every day or during the day? Okay. <laughs> how, how many people will? Okay. So, oh, one person, only one person on stage. That's how. Uh, <laughs> we get all our news. So, the managing editors right. may be interested in this, but anyway, we'll get to that. Um, secondly, how many people watch cable television on politics at some point during the week? Okay. Um, when I asked this question two years ago when I was a visiting uh, student at Stanford, I, a scholar at Stanford, um, of a class of 160 undergraduates, um, not as many here are undergraduates. I, must, <laughs> yes, I might submit, I, I may be wrong. Um, uh, the three hands went up my hand, the professor's hand, and one student. Okay? So, my, pr- my proposition or my question is should, are we being driven maybe by the right? media is this drive that the cable that seems to be leading us the right way we should be going. And the reason I I also would like to just link this, obviously, some of us pay more and more attention to blogs. And I'm not saying they don't get your news. They probably get it. They aren't aware that they're reading it on the websites that they're reading, they may be reading the Times, Post, or whatever, Salon, so sorry. And, uh, um, but with with Howard, Howard Reingold here as a, as a colleague and friend here, uh, the, to do respect the sort of crowdsourcing, the idea of information moving more quickly, how do you incorporate that or how do you see that happening? It's going to be very hard to do if. If, as Elizabeth points out, you're really trying to meet those deadlines, you hardly have time to... I, I'm sorry, take... what's the question? Yeah, what so you... the question is, are we being driven by... Is it right to, be being dri- to to assume that we're being driven by the cable media and therefore it's okay that we keep that story of the day, the trivia story of the day, going in and out of these news cycles? Or should we be looking... Um, to something that's that's more coming out of the general populace and the general um... I,
5: first of all did, did you ask the students how many read read papers online yeah. because that you would get yeah. a, at Stanford you would get a very large response yeah. I'm pretty sure
8: most of them don't know that they're most of them don't differentiate um... They, they may be taking RSS feeds so they may be not differentiating specific papers but they're taking a lot of news online but it's in various forms and it might
5: be the times website we you know right. we have more readers online now than we do in the, the you know the old papers exactly. so um... And it's very popular on campuses, you know. So anyway, so I'm not as alarmed about it as you, or maybe I should be. But um, w- I don't think we're driven by cable. Um, I think we're driven by web- other websites. I mean, I think that's what's dry. I don't think, and I don't think, again, I'm going to sound, I don't think what we put up online every day is trivia. We put up, uh, if you look at our caucus, our caucus blog, we put up, just short takes of of i would say substance i mean there 's some, there's some bright light things in there, but a lot of times it 's just getting uh, the, the, as I said, the top of mccain 's nuclear speech, you know the top of the the speech on judges, you know uh, yeah, what Obama, you know obamas going to take take a trip yesterday, example obama 's going to take a trip to Iraq now, you know, <laughs> you, know it's, you see it you can see it happening minute by minute, okay, McCain says. I'm, Obama should come with me to Iraq, you know, on a trip. Okay, we put that up. Then five minutes later, Jeff Zeleny puts up, you know, Obama says he's going to Iraq. Well, okay, that's a lot of back and forth tit for tat, but I don't consider it trivia. I mean, it's, it's kind of a political stunt, on a, you know, of course, but, but it's a substantive issue. It's not about girlfriends and, you know, favorite food and all that kind of stuff and, you know.
8: And, and don't get me wrong. I'll, I'll sit yeah. down. But the, que- the question was not it was meant to honor what you're doing, not to disrespect it. But the point being that it's all the more important that I think you stick to your guns and cover those stories, as you were saying. than let um, the trivial aspects take over. That's all. Thank
4: you. I, I guess what I would say in answer to your question is that, um, you know, we used to think of news cycles, um, and. Campaigns think about winning news cycles. I think we're now in a period in which there is no cycle. I mean, it's just a news continuum. Right. And, and as Elizabeth said, things play out in real time. Uh, we report them in, not in whole uh, through much of the day, and sometimes not at all, but in pieces. And I think people uh, consume the news that way, uh, particularly avid consumers of, of news and information. Um, there's still a role for, you know, a newspaper story that pulls a lot of things together. There's still a role, obviously, for deeper reporting, uh, for investigative reporting, but just in the way campaign information now now rolls out, uh, it is much more simply the day starts, there's a storyline that's moving, things are added to it, things are subtracted from it, uh, and, it's, you know, it's the way we all absorb what's actually going on, and we then draw our conclusions from... From it in a different way?
5: I, I just want to say this is obvious to anybody who reads a paper. I hope it's obvious that we also have, you know, in Washington and New York, a whole stable of political reporters who are doing longer range pieces. There's one running in the Times tomorrow about McCain that's actually, you know, I haven't read it, but I saw, saw a lot of it on, you know, as it was, it, it, it looks great. And we do that every day. I read and, it, it's um, great. Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to say what it is. So um, I didn't write it. But it's um, <laughs> quarter one in New York. You could let the world. Up. You're right. <laughs> no, it's a, bio, it's a, bio it's a bio But the point is, that's not all we do. So there's, you know, what I'm doing right now is nuts. But we have a lot of, you know, really smart reporters in both places, turning out really good, substantive, long pieces about the candidates and about issues. And they run, a, they run a lot. You know.
1: Great.
3: All right, my, my question is a little bit off the topic of covering campaign 2008, but I hope that's okay. I am one of these undergraduates who apparently is very unconnected to things, but <laughs> so I'm here tonight anyway. I defended you. I know, I know, I appreciate it. And, and I agree, I, I don't read a newspaper every day, I don't watch TV every day because I don't have a TV and I don't get a newspaper delivered to my door, but I do have the internet and that's where I read stuff in the New York Times and the Washington Post and things like that. But my question is, I'm, you know, I'm a sophomore at Stanford, you guys are at the top of your profession. How do I get from point A to point B? What do I do if I want to become a political journalist?
5: You like can't you? be serious after listening to that. <laughs> oh. <laughs> no. 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 This is like the, the most exciting man. thing I've heard all night.
6: <laughs> it's a little like here growing up hearing about the railroads in the days of Casey Jones and, <laughs> and signing on and discovering it's called Amtrak. <laughs>
2: Listen, I'm going to – You can I, do it, better it, than that. Yeah, way. first of all, I think I applaud you. I don't yeah. think <laughs> it's crazy at all. It's, I can't tell you what it's going to be like when you're, you know, our age. But I do believe there's going to be some form of political journalism. I, you know, I don't think it'll be on paper. i will probably on the web. I think there will always be a need for what we would call long-term, reported, analytical – edited story. So, I mean, you know, like I said before, you won't get, you won't like get super rich, but you'll, it's a really glamorous job. I, I, I'll tell you the way I did it. I don't know what would work for you. I, I worked for my, I worked for my school newspaper. Um, I yeah. did not go to journalism school and I, I don't personally recommend that, but if anyone here did, that's fine. And then I started working <laughs> for a small newspaper in Westchester County in New York. And then by a fluke, got hired at the Daily... Oh, can I say one thing? I always, like, if you knew me when I was, I guess, your age, even younger, my, I, I would tell you my ambition in life was to be the chief political reporter of the New York Times. I have, you know, I have witnesses of this, right? So that was always what my goal was. So I, um, I started working at a small paper in Westchester covering cops and doing obituaries and covering local c- communities, and then got picked up at the Daily News and um, worked at USA Today. And the, the way I got hired at USA Today was the editor at USA Today knew me from my first job, Newman wanted to work in the New. Newman wanted to work in the New York Times. This is before there was really much of an internet, and he said to me, um, "USA Today was one newspaper that you could get. The journal, the Journal in the USA Today was one paper that you could get when you were like in Iowa." And he said, "Johnny Apple, who at the time was like the preeminent political journalist at the Times, um, will read your stuff if you write for USA Today. It'll hire you." And he was right. So um, <laughs> that's not entirely helpful because one of the big changes is that there's not. There are fewer newspapers and there are fewer newspaper jobs. So. Uh, I'm not sure how helpful that is. But I would just start with school newspaper, know what you want to do, read political journalism, and just get into it and just start doing it.
6: Since I made one of the lighthearted comments, uh, it is a serious question, and I'm with Adam and admiring you for it. Um, My route is a little, is both similar and different. I've never taken a journalism course in my life. Um, I majored in college in history and went to graduate school in history. Worked for the school paper, uh, discovered I love being a columnist, uh, spent the next 40 years trying, 30 years plotting how to be a columnist. I managed. It, it is great fun. But much more importantly, the two things are I started with a small political magazine called Washington Monthly. But the fact is, as long as there is someone who will publish you and give you a bare bones subsistence to eat while you're being published and you have respect for the colleagues with which you work. It's the best way to start, wherever it is, and if you remember one thing from tonight about political journalism, it's humility. Any point that you're convinced that you're totally right and you understand exactly what's happening in American politics, the American voter will convince you otherwise. (laughs) And just ask President Giuliani.
1: Any other comments
4: on that? Well, um, I guess I I have to stand up for journalism schools. I have not one but two degrees in journalism, um, which I always tell younger people is at least one more than you need. uh, (laughs) Witness all of these people here. I I don't think there's any obvious uh, way in. you listen to all of us, everybody's gotten to this uh, a little bit differently. Uh, We have been lucky along the way. Uh, I think if you have a desire to do it, Find a place that will let you do it. Uh, as Walter said, work for people with that you can respect and who give you stimulation. I think the path Adam described is a path that many people who are in our positions today followed. I think there's a younger generation of political reporters who are following a quite different path, one that doesn't necessarily go through the traditional smaller paper route and then do a larger paper and then, you know, to you know, the big papers, uh, but who start on more specialized publications, um, whether it's the Politico or uh, Roll Call or paper like that um, on Capitol Hill. And we even have a guy, uh, Chris Saliza, who does the fix for our website, who's one of the bright lights uh, of the younger cadre of political journalists who started out first as a researcher for George Will and then worked for Charlie Cook's cook political report and then went to roll call and then came over to us uh, has had no you know what you would call traditional newspaper experience and yet knows the field of politics and is you know is flourishing so there's lots of different ways to do it but i think that your commitment to do it is the most important
0: terry andrea live in palo alto Um, The top, I'm rethinking, thinking about what the question is here that might be the most interesting, but I'm thinking about the swift boating uh, type of issues, and I've heard some somewhat disparaging remarks about 527s. If we anticipate that those will be part of the fall campaign and that they will be sprung upon the public in whatever ways they can, um, one of the questions I was going to ask is uh, what do you think might come up, but that may be less interesting than the question of how do you plan on handling these in order to get the most accurate information about those issues out and I think following up on that is the power of the as you, someone said the three cable networks I'm not sure what you mean we have one network serving Palo Alto called Comcast but there are, I guess, three news channels, CNN, Fox, and MSN. Is that what yeah, you meant that, by that that's worrying?
6: what I meant when I referred to it.
0: Okay. How will you, how will you um, or, or do you feel an obligation to um, combat the consistent gossip kind of attitude that I often see on those cable network news programs? In, in, in on the same topic, the 527 attacks? that may come up.
1: Somebody want to comment on the Well, I I, mean, I of quick, think
4: I mean uh, I mean our assumption is there will be 527 attacks and and 527 ads and uh, some may be beyond the pale and those you know we will try to you know point out what's right, what's wrong and particularly what's wrong. Um, you know we you know we're not going to probably have the resources to do you know 22 stories about a particular 527, but if if a uh, you know if an ad is egregious, uh, I think everybody will point it out. I mean the Swift Boat stuff, realistically, I mean that was critiqued fairly quickly uh, by the media of all types, um, and in some ways the media I think reacted uh, more aggressively about it than the Kerry campaign. Did. <laughs> That's right. Uh,
10: That's right. It
4: took a while. But um, you know we, you know. Our role is not simply to police five twenty seven Our role is to cover the entirety of the campaign, so it will depend on the you know on the sort of the, the degree to which there is a you know a flagrant foul as opposed to a you know a minor one um, and in terms of your other question, I mean I think every you know every organization has its own set of standards and its values um, and we can't take our lead uh, or our main responsibility to be Saying well, if somebody else does something that we don't agree with, we're going to have to do you know a critique of it. I mean, what MSNBC does, MSNBC does, and what the Washington Post does, the Washington Post does. Uh, to the extent that you get a different view from us than you do from somewhere else, um, we like to think it's because you know we're doing it the right way. But as, as Larry pointed out, not everybody's going to agree with that, uh, and so um, you know we we have to. We have to set our own compass and try to follow it as best we can despite everything else that's going on. And so, you know, I guess that's the best way I can answer
6: that. There are moments when one does feel with the best intentions in the world, if there is a feeding frenzy going on through blogs, through TV ads, through hundreds of different transfer- information channels, Um, say that Obama really was educated in a madrasa, which I hope no one here believes, Uh, that there are moments where you feel like you're in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean with a leaky rowboat um, and a rather (laughs) small pail and you're bailing as fast as you can, but you do sometimes feel like the effort is futile. But the other time is, despite a couple of certain recent elections, I really do have a very high respect for the intelligence of the American people to sort out lots of things in an intelligent way.
0: A a follow-on question might be, does anyone here know the percentage of Americans who get their news only from the cable networks? I have a brother-in-law, case in point, (laughs) who only gets news from broadcast because he doesn't enjoy reading. Does anyone know what... Just in general, the United States population uh, uh, that only gets most
1: news Most people that say that self-report that they get their news from television. But,
5: but the, the, the actual um, audiences aren't that large. No, in right. fact, MSNBC. You know, right. Yeah, I mean it's yeah. it's less than the. So some of it is television, of some times. of it
1: is conversation about what was on television. Yeah. yeah,
5: some yeah of it I mean,
10: was, Adam,
1: what's, yeah. the, what's
10: the viewership
3: of MSNBC? Uh, it's oh. Not, oh, it's yeah, in the hundreds the of thousands. Members. I mean, it, it's yeah, not it's less than the circulation
5: of our papers. Fox.
6: Somewhere during the Pennsylvania primary when there was a huge argument over uh, was MSNBC being misogynist in their coverage of Hillary Clinton, uh, I did some quick calculations and estimated that at a point in prime time, 35,000 residents, TV sets in the state of Pennsylvania were tuned to MSNBC. I don't know how many of those people were out of the room. So in a world, in a world where everyone's obsessed about what Chris Matthews said, 99 percent of Pennsylvania wasn't watching him.
5: But but he's but it, he's but it's got a boomerang effect. He's it's, he's covered yeah. in all of you know, the other media. So right. it's not just the audience.
11: Is it my turn? Yes. Thank you. People are leaving. Yeah,
1: yeah.
11: <laughs> no, I th- see a broader issue here. Um, having grown up thinking that Franklin Delano Roosevelt was the only President the United States would ever have. Uh, what I find today since the um, uh, the New York 2001 uh, bombing, uh, the world and the United States are, um, We're all in a very unusual situation that there are not um, easy solutions. So every time I would listen to the debates, at first I wanted to hear, well, how are you gonna solve this? And it was very great to hear, we'll do this, that, and the other, but nobody's talking about where the money's coming from because, of course, we all know it's going to the war, how to get out from the war Mm -hmm. without leaving the soldiers, Um, and the people of Iraq, so uh, now I am less interested in hearing solutions by the candidates. I want to know what Walter has brought up, and that is what's the management style? What kind of people um, they're going to ask to be their advisors? If we knew that when Bush got in, you know, it would have been a different story. And so I don't know how you can find out that information. The one thing that did strike me and why I have supported Obama is because I think a lot of us are really uh, very upset with politicians. (laughs) And it may be part of their description that uh, you give, you take, you make deals and so forth. But I think when Obama came in and really was anti-political, and he's gotten young people interested in this possibility of change, which I'm just cynical enough to, you know, not be sure is going to happen, but how can you find out, uh, as you said, the management style and um, the the honesty of Obama was an appeal to a lot of people and so I don't know whether this is uh, a question or some request for comments.
6: I will just say in one sentence: I really appreciate the comment and and the, your reaction and what your comment does is m- inspires me to try to figure out ways of doing that sort of reporting better.
2: Thank you. I think one of the key um, <clears throat> uh, obligations of us as political reporters is to try to give you guys. Voters, Americans, a sense of what this person would be like and do as president. And I remember when I um, covered Bill Clinton in 1992 and came in talking about the first six months here, and he had a disastrous first six months. I was like, why didn't we sort of communicate to people that the fact that he had no Washington experience would be a problem in the environment, right? Um, the way I try to do it now, I can't tell you, you know, I mean, obviously Bush is one example that we did tons of biographical stories on him, but I don't think we ever got across the idea that he might not be the best manager in the history of the Republic. Um, but the two things we try to do to get at this is give you a sense of the people that the candidate surrounds himself or herself with. I think that's pretty critical, who they are, what their backgrounds are, what their experience is. The other thing that I've done, and you know, I don't know whether this is predictive or not, but I'm not sure what else to do, is take a look in the case of Hillary Clinton of the way she managed her campaign. And I do think it's fair to say, and this is also true of John McCain, you could draw some lessons from the fact that you know, in her case, the campaign was driven by some infighting, disorganization, ran out of money, made bad tactical decisions. I think examining that and her role in that is one way to try to get at that. I'm, I'm, I, I'm slightly less um, skeptical or slightly less worried. than I, I think that might be, begin to get us to that point. I don't feel we've failed quite as much as I think you feel we have, but uh, we'll find out. Because uh, I agree, this is critical, critical, critical.
12: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. you. Hi. um, I'm Anjali, and I'm also an undergraduate, and I would like to say I think more undergrads read the paper, but maybe more often read blogs, watch YouTube videos, t- read about marginal issues such as the fact that uh, Hillary Clinton's comment about obliterating Iran and maybe issues that don't get commented on so much in the uh, big press. And something that both, all of you have touched upon is sort of the influence of the netroots roots and the kind of blurring between citizen journalism and professional journalism. And I would like to note to what extent the net roots, one, sort of offer echoes for you for your work about how good a job you are doing and also what a more realistic notion of public opinion is, and two, to what extent um, the net roots through blogging. I've noticed that the New York Times now offers snippets of uh, debates on blogging heads between experts, and to what extent that type of dialogue provides uh, may in the future provide a promise for maybe what Obama calls you know, a new type of politics or a new type of civic engagement, but basically outlets for um, civic participation online.
3: Well, I can say that usually the feedback we get from the net roots is not about what a great job we're doing. It's um, never it, it is quite often the opposite. Um, although I found that as it's evolved, I think early on, actually, a lot of it, and in, in maybe in, in fact in the last presidential cycle, a lot of it's felt to us to have been hijacked by the loudest voices. And over time, it has felt more, and I don't know if, they've had, if you all have had the similar experience, it has felt as more people have gained access to the internet, more people are participating in the Netroots, it's kind of evened out and the tone has at least in my experience calmed down somewhat this year compared to in 2004. Um, I enjoy the feedback, I enjoy you know there are incidents when it's incredibly painful and there's a lot of vitriol but on balance I think that I get story ideas from readers, um, I get you know, criticism that I think is fair sometimes, uh, you know, and I'm happy to hear it. And more than that, I feel like, if anything is gonna keep everyone reading and engaged, it's the sense that everybody is a part of this, that there's not some kind of, you know, removed, you know, elite group of reporters doing a job that everyone can attack, that we're all sort of, that we're representing people when we go to a press conference to ask a question. We're not just there for us. We're there asking the questions that other people can't ask, because that's not their day job. <coughs>
6: I guess as Mr. online young hip happening here, <laughs> <laughs> I have to respond I'll just make a couple of very quick points, one of which is, like Ann just said, uh, I think all of us are eager for any feedback from readers that is remotely polite and remotely well informed. They can be total disagreements. What irks me, and at Salon, at the end of every story, they let readers post whatever they want. You know, want within uh, uh, within the semblance of basic decorum, and uh, and that is the conspiracy theories that flourish about every single piece one writes. That clearly, this adjective was chosen because you're in the tank for Obama even though I was attacked probably in the previous piece for being in the tank for Hillary. And in truth, the adjectives are generally chosen between I have another minute and seven seconds to finish that sentence. Is there some interesting way of writing that sentence? But the larger point about the net roots is that I think there's a very, uh, particularly on the Democratic side, I think this is a very interesting time of evolution for them. I'm not sure what direction they're going. It's been very easy shooting fish in a barrel, for a great metaphor, um, in terms of attacking the Bush administration and always talking about um, the media's complicity in the run-up to the Iraq war. As we move away from the Bush administration, it's trying to figure out what their role is and what their tone is, and I don't have an answer to that.
5: I would say the vast majority of what i get is is um, unprint, it, it's vulgar it's pornographic it 's unprintable um, and when I get something as like Anna when I get something polite remotely polite and and uh, i'm all i always respond i 'm so surprised you know and and um, i do so mostly i find it um depressing frankly what i get um and um but i do i do like the comments on the on our caucus blog i like those comments because they they take out all the really you know the the stuff that we can't put in the paper you know all the bad language and they take out personal attacks by name on reporters. So I find those comments very helpful because there's, you know, I I look at the debate. I mean, it's it's self-selecting. You know, I guess readers of the New York Times are a self-selecting group. But I find it interesting to when I've written something, like I said earlier, and in in you know in 15 minutes there's 100 comments up. I mean, that does make me feel connected. So I do like that process. I don't like the vitriol that I get, and um, I, a lot of times I just I just I just delete it right away because can't. you can't read it all day and live like that, you know, it's just hard to take.
4: I, I'd, I'd make a distinction between the kind of response that Elizabeth is talking about and the net roots as a force in politics, uh, particularly in the Democratic Party. I think they have become a force. I think that uh, if broadly defined, they've been uh, a very uh, active part of what the Obama campaign is about. Um, it is, it is, as a political phenomenon, hard to write about uh, because it is in many ways dispersed. It's a series of communities. Um, but I think more and more it is a way for political engagement uh, for lots of different types of people. Uh, and smart politicians are figuring out how to, how to aggregate that up into their campaign operations. Um, but, the, uh, but, as Elizabeth says, the, the individual responses, but I don't attribute that to the quote-unquote networks per se. I just think that's, you know, people who have uh, nasty opinions sometimes, and sometimes good critical comments. So. Our
1: last question.
13: Uh, uh, make it this, a good one. <laughs> well, we'll see. In this campaign, seems to me demographic is destiny, and based <laughs> on this, I would assume statistically all of you support Obama. I mean maybe one of you don't but statistically based on your demographics oh. and <laughs> you know i don't ask you who don't it's okay and my question
2: what's, the, what's our shared code demographic here? <laughs>
13: I
6: love all these guys, but anyway. Oh, I, I, th- I think we're a bitter demographic for the most
13: yeah. part. <laughs> no, well-educated, live on cost, you know, you know, PhD. Some of you, so you. Know, I, typical <laughs> Obama voters. Okay. Anyway, so my question is, and three of you may comment about race. And idea was that people West Virginia who didn't vote for Obama. Uh, didn't do it because of race. And you, don't make a comment that we will know if, um, you know, if, if we're beyond race or not. It seems to be if we elect Obama, we're kind of good country. If we don't elect Obama, it seems to be uh, we're not good enough. Is it, in this seems to be constant theme. That was an evaluative, I, that was my statement. That was not a evaluative statement. What I said
2: was, just to be clear, what I said was that all the political trends would suggest in a normal election year that the Democrats should win, right? Because the Republicans being so unpopular, country going in the wrong direction, the natural inclination for change. What I said is the one thing that gives, makes me uncertain is whether the country is prepared to elect a black man as president or not. I'm not saying it's a good thing or a bad thing. Okay? But just it, want
13: to be clear. Another question you can say whether a country is prepared to elect uh, so. I would not say inexperienced, but person without formal credential. That probably would go back to Lincoln, who said, "This is the last guy who has so little formal experience or achievement in anything." So, how we know if people don't elect, don't vote in West Virginia because he is black, or because you know he would not vote for him if if he would be white? And seems to me. Um, assumption is that people don't vote because he is black. It's show that you guys have, you know, your own biases. Well, you it's
2: 20%. N- I gonna say, sorry, 20%, there was an exit poll in, in West Virginia and a couple other states where 20% of the voters who voted for Hillary Clinton said that race was a factor in making their decisions. So it's not bias or conjecture. That's, I mean, that's what we know.
13: But I would say a lot of um, Obama voters, at least, you know, African Americans who vote for Obama, you know, they vote because race is important for them. So, you know, I don't know how you can only single out one of group people. I, I don't so think in, that we have, if we have left the
4: impression that we think the only reason Barack Obama, if he's the nominee, could lose the election is because he's black, I don't think that is what any of us believe. Uh, I think there are any number of reasons why somebody might not vote for Barack Obama. Um, but one reason they might not vote for Obama, which is different than the reasons they might not vote for McCain, is because he is African-American. That is a, that is a factor in the decision of some voters. But your, your point is absolutely right. Some voters may decide they don't want Barack Obama as president because they think he's inexperienced, or they may disagree with his policy positions. I mean, there are a whole host of reasons why people do or don't vote for somebody, um, but if he's the nominee and is the first African American, that enters into the equation.
1: I, I thought that was the last question, but if the, if the audience is patient enough, maybe we'll have. The people are shaking their heads.
6: <laughs> the panel. Okay. We can talk <laughs> really quick. <laughs> it
1: was very quick.
11: Okay. I, I'm concerned that you, as the press, Uh, as pointed out in uh, Barack Obama's book is makes the candidates and defines the candidates. And this evening we have heard over and over again that Barack Obama is black. But I'm confused because Barack Obama has a white mother and was brought up in white culture and I don't understand
5: how that defines him as black. Uh, he he quick, calls it, he defines himself as black, sir. I think, I think...
6: Hmm. Well, and, and, it and, is and, certainly, yeah. as near as we know, Barack Obama is the first mixed-race person about to get a presidential nomination in American history, which is another way of putting
1: right. it. Right, even if Dick Cheney was a cousin. Yeah,
6: <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but, but you,
1: you do recall there's a long practice of. Uh, somewhat uh, racist in America of the one drop rule uh, where uh, uh, the long practice in the American South of any black heritage classifying somebody as uh, black. So uh, American racial history is very tortured and complex and the norms and perceptions um, play differently with different audiences. He clearly now is perceived as an African American Candidates perceived that way by the African American community who rallied to him, as you pointed out, once it became clear that he was a credible candidate uh, after Iowa. But these are, this, these are matters of perception. Uh, clearly the future of the election is a mystery wrapped in an enigma uh, which will play out as the fall uh, approaches. I just want to say thank you to, uh, first I want to thank the, the staff who worked so hard to make this possible, uh, Mark DeZutti, Sean Bernardo, and Barbara Katoka, even though she didn't want me to mention her, uh, and uh, everybody in the department who worked on this. I want to thank the uh, Carlos Kelly McClatchy Fund, which primarily supported it, the Hearst Fund, Professional Residence and Journalism Fund, which, which also supported it. And I want to thank most of all this extraordinary group of um, political journalists, who've taken just a few moments out of the, um, uh, the madcap uh, race uh, to come to Palo Alto, some for only a few hours. We thought that the race would be long over by this point, And we wanted them to stay for several days and interact with the community. And I'm heartbroken that they all have to get on airplanes almost as soon as possible. So let me say, they all have standing invitations to come back at our expense. And we would like them to come back and continue the dialogue. Thank you very much.
0: The preceding program is copyrighted by
3: Stanford University. Please visit us at stanford.edu.